I'm going to ask Cassandra just to bring the reading to us this morning. Hebrews chapter 6. Thank you, Cassandra. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the the blessing of God but the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed in the end it will be burned even though we speak like this dear friends we are convinced of better things in your case the things that have to do with salvation God is not unjust he will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Heavenly Father, we, we recognise our complete need of you to guide us and lead us by your Spirit. We don't want to see this passage in our own human eyes. We need help. And we ask for help. And we are confident to know that when we do that, that you are gracious to and by your Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us, that you would help us to grow to be the people you've called us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Cassandra, for reading uh, that passage. Uh, so this is where we are today, Hebrews chapter 6. Do you remember a moment in your life when you realised you were no longer a child, but you were becoming an adult? Was there a particular moment when that occurred? 
Now, for me, as I've reflected on it uh, this week, I, I can, there's probably a number of things, but I remember vaguely a situation where I was with my, my mum and dad and uh, we were um, introduced to a, a, a new family and I was with my mum and dad and these particular people said to my mum and dad, now who's this young man? Now I was probably 10 or 12 or something like this and I remember sort of going, I don't know, where, where's, where's that young man? I I don't know, and until I realised they were talking about, about me. I'm, I'm being referred to as a young man for the very first time in my life. And it has that impact on where you go, what does that mean? What does it mean if I'm no longer a child and I'm, I'm now a man? Do I have to behave differently? Am I, do I need to think through things differently? What is now my role as a, as a young man? Now, maybe for, for you, uh, there, there may have been a moment or just this growing realisation that we're no longer a child and we're becoming an adult. And what are the implications for all of that? Now, I might have only been 10 or 12 when that particular situation occurred, but it probably wasn't until I was really put into a position um, leading a, a, a youth group or being asked to, to help lead a, a youth group at our local church, you go, well, I need to step up to the plate. I'm no longer the youth. I'm the leader. I need to think differently. I need to behave differently. I have levels of responsibility. There was that other step where I'm going, I'm no longer a child. I'm transitioning into becoming a man. And it's only then, I guess, when you start to think um, getting ready to become married, that was another step where I go, well, I can no longer do the things that I used to do and no longer just behave like a boy. I need to become a man. And especially a year after that, when our first daughter was born, we go, well, certainly I've got to get rid of all of this childish ways. It was a slow and tedious process, wasn't it, honey? Yeah. I'm waiting for the conversation home in the car where she goes, do you really think you've grown up, John, do you? Um. But there's a time when we realise we need to grow up. And look, let's face it, we see, we see some, and maybe it's a reflection of ourselves, we see some people and they go, they never grow up, do they? They just always behave like children. We can't be a child forever. And today we see here in Hebrews chapter 6, it, it's, it's kind of almost the writer is bringing it up and up and up and brings it to a, a high point here in chapter 6. And in some ways, at the first read, I, I looked at this and I go, great, how did I get this passage? I should have handballed this one to Steve, shouldn't I? Um, uh, it's, it's a tricky one because it requires a little bit of reading and rereading and considering and reflecting and prayer. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer is building up to this point and he uses the, 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 the point about you know, acting in childish behaviour and moving from milk to meat as, as, a, as a child or an infant grows from relying on, on milk to something more substantial. And so here we come to chapter 6 where it alludes to a danger of falling away or not willing to go to that next step in the maturity process. And some people look at this and they go, well, this is really referring to losing your salvation, is it not? And, and this is where it can be very, very tricky because at a first read, it can appear that for some of us, if we're not willing to grow up or not willing to really embrace the faith, 
we can fall away, as it says here, or lose uh, your salvation. Now, with this, whenever you explore a, a text, particularly if it can be quite tricky and complex, it's always important to explore this in the light of the overall teaching of the Bible. What does the Bible say about this concept, particularly in this context? What does it mean about people falling away or losing that gift of salvation? Now, there are, within the, 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 the Christian faith, there are a lot of variations about people who believe certain things about this. And there'll be some people, let's say right over here, who will say, yes, you can. Now, uh, loosely we call these Armenian people, there's a country called Armenia, but that's beside the point. There are people who say, yes, you can. Now, what's the danger of having this belief that you can lose your salvation? I think that gives you a, a, a real lack of assurance, doesn't it? I'm saved today. Now, I had a really bad week last week. Maybe I'm no longer saved. So I need to get saved again. And they were the people who you would have a gathering like this and you'd call and you'd make an appeal and they'd be the people who come forward week after week after week because I think I've lost my salvation. And can you imagine, and I'm, I'm hoping none of us are in, here in this situation, can you imagine the anxiety in your life sort of thinking, have I done something this week that has caused me to lose it and I have to start the whole process again? People who would say, I need to be baptised for the fifth time because I just want to make sure. I, I would struggle in this position here because it basically says you cannot have any real assurance. You can. And then... Not like it's a single position. There's a, there's a gradient through here. And up the other end is a, a more reformed position that says there is absolutely no way you can lose your salvation. Everything is locked in and secure. Now, what's the, the danger when we just have that particular mindset? We can become quite apathetic. I don't need to do anything about my faith, my my. My destiny is secure, so I can go and live the life like I, I want to live, and I just know that I've got a place in heaven. Okay? Now, there is this, I guess you could call a, a spectrum, two extreme positions. And there's dangers when we just focus in on one or the other. No assurance or an apathy. But like most situations, we need to wrestle with this, knowing that the mysteries of God sometimes will never fully get our, our head around and particular passage that seem to contradict one another in these extreme positions. Only God knows. Now, what do other passages, as I've said before, when we strike a, a really difficult passage... What do we look at and where do we go to sort of find something that, that we can help us in this wrestle? In John chapter 6, verses 38 to 40, John chapter 6, verses 38 to 40, Jesus says these things. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I, that I shall lose none of all of those he has given me but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks 
to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. Now this passage seems to clearly state that those who are born again, followers of Jesus, cannot be lost to Christ. Can you, can you see what it's, it's saying there? It, it comes towards this position and says, you are safe and secure as followers of Jesus. Oh, now, by the way, as everyone's got their, their study guide there. We're following this um, fairly closely within this study guide here. Help you personally, but also in your growth group. But what about those people? And I'm sure if you've been in the church for a number of years, we all know someone who's made a profession of faith. They maybe got baptised. They served in the church. They did all the things at the external appearance. You'd say, that person is a follower of Jesus. That person is born again. That person, we just know who they are in Christ. And then these people get disillusioned. And then somehow they lose their way and they end up denying their faith. Now, I, I know probably a, at least a handful of people who I've associated with who have been in that position. And I'm, I'm sure all of you have had experience of people who appear to have fallen away. Now, what does that mean for where they are in Christ? One passage that may sort of point us a little bit is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, where John writes this. They said, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So that raises the question for people who completely deny faith. Does it mean that they never were Initially, can, can you see the struggle and the wrestle that we have in all of this? And in this small moment that we have this morning, I, I don't want to sort of say, look, I'll solve this problem for you and I'll place you in a position and here is a... Ch this is one of these things that we work out like so many other aspects of our faith. We, we never fully comprehend or understand and especially when we see people and loved ones go down a particular path. But this passage here in 1 John seems to indicate that anyone who falls away was never saved in the first place. And this is a strong argument against this argument down this end here. And so therefore many can swing hard the other way and, 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 and so it goes on. But here in chapter 6 in Hebrews, as, he's, as the writer's working his way through the various arguments, particularly against, uh, writing to a group of people who have said yes to Jesus, but have suffered because they've said yes to Jesus. And the temptation is, well, I'm going to walk away from that so I don't have to suffer anymore. Chapter 6 gives a warning. And it gives a warning, otherwise this could create an apathy or an immaturity. 
I think one of the, the, the great pointers in all of this, and we look at it, and I know it's just a parable, but the parable of the prodigal son, where we see two sons who are in a relationship and in a family with this loving dad. One son chooses to go his own way and uh, make up his own life. But we've got this other, the older brother, the older son who stays at home safe and secure within the environment of that family, but seemingly not realising the blessing and the privilege that he has and also the responsibility that he has within that family as well. And so often we can forget about the privileges that we have. Well, what about those who have said and done all of the right things and yet their heart has never been changed? So I'm going to look at three, I'm going to break this passage down into three little bites and hopefully this will help us as we try to digest what the writer is saying here, not only to those Jewish Christians back 2,000 years ago, but to us today as well. So the first one is we're just going to look at uh, verses four to six and I've titled this part, Just a Taste. Now on the surface as we read this, it, it does look like it's possible for believers to lose their salvation. I'll read it again, verses four through to six. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, the, the key context here that the writer is writing to these Jewish Christians is motivating Christians to maturity. He wants these Christians to grow up. He wants them to trust in the midst of all of these trials and tribulations. And he's basically saying here, believers don't need salvation again. You don't need to be resaved. He's saying you really only need to grow up. The writer wants to see them as saved. They can't, as I've said, be resaved. Whether you're baby Christians or mature Christians, he's saying you still have saving faith. But there are also those who have experienced the Lord or tasted salvation, people whose lives have never been transformed. And this here. I think he seems to be referring to, in this particular passage, two groups of people. And in here we say, we always say there's two types of people, isn't it? In this case, there are two types of people. And the first one we'll see is this. The first one is those who are saved, but they need to move on to a maturity. He's motivating these people and saying, don't stay where you are. Don't, you know, try to find the... the, the, the point of least resistance he says grow up and trust in him but there he's also challenging those who have sampled the gift but have rejected Christ now I think as we look here that first group probably needs little explanation you are a follower of Jesus at some point you surrendered your life to Christ why aren't you continuing to grow in that you have been redeemed. And in some ways, it's, it's following on from that passage in uh, chapter 5 where the writer is saying, here you are as followers, you're still on baby milk. 
You need to find ways to grow up. You need to continue to trust in him and allow him to do that work into you so you can move on from being merely a child into an adult. What about this second group? Now, we probably don't do this much this time of the year, but in the summer, who likes going to an ice cream shop? You know, Baskin-Robbins... You know, the, the 110 flavoured ice cream shop, you know, down in Byron Bay or whatever it is. And you know one of the, the great things they have about these ice cream shops? They have tasting spoons. Now, they put in front of you, they put, you know, 100 flavours in front of you and they say, which one would you like? And, and you know straight away, how can I make a decision? So they give you a tasting spoon. Now, the idea of all of this, I'm assuming, I've never owned an ice cream shop, two or three choices, you know, two or three tastes, and then at some point you've got to make a decision, don't you? Now, I'm quite often with a group of people, I'm not going to mention names, but they like to taste every flavour. And, you know, there's people lining up out the door and they're going, oh, that one looks really nice. Can I taste that one? Now, I don't know whether ice cream shops have a policy and they go, you know, once you've done six, that's it. Because you've got to get a new spoon for all of those and, you know, particularly on a hot, you know, Saturday afternoon and there's every, people everywhere and you go, oh, no, I'd like to try another one and another one. And another one. And you know what? I would imagine if I owned an ice cream shop, you know the worst thing that would happen is they try these 40 flavors and they go, hmm, thank you, see you later. <laughs> I've probably got a whole serve of ice cream out of just tasting every one of those 40 flavors or whatever it is. How frustrating is that? But you know where I'm going all of this? I, there are people who live their lives like that. Tasting a bit here and tasting a bit there and trying a little bit of this and I'll hang around. Look, this, that person looks really... Oh, I'll go along with them to church and I'll taste a little bit of this and I'll go along to their growth group and I'll taste a little bit of this and I'll do a little bit here and I'll, I'll do a little bit here. But when it comes to the decision to make, you know, to dive in, they're going, no, I'll taste somewhere else and spend their whole life sampling the gift, enjoying the fellowship, and in many respects, looking like the Christian, looking like the follower. Because after a while, you start tasting this, that. You start to look like those round about you. But have never bought an ice cream, to use that expression. Never made the sacrifice. Never went all in. In Psalm 34, verse 8, we read this. The writer says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Great verse. I think there's quite a few people who adopt the first without going to the second part of that passage. You know what I'm saying? There's plenty of people who have taken, and I've had plenty of experiences of people who've seen answered prayer. They've seen God done some amazing things. I, I think of a number of, of peers of mine who have made all the moves. And like I said, they've, they've, they've seen God move in their life in a miraculous way. But that's enough. They don't go any further. 
and they reject the second part of that passage. They may be in the same church, they may be in a group, they may look, whatever. What about Psalm 42, verse 1? Psalm 42, verse 1, the writer says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. This is more than just using a tasting spoon, isn't it? This is more than just dancing around the edges and just, you know, doing a little bit of this or a little. This is saying, I need you, God. I'm all in. This is more than a sample, more than an external association. I'm going to ditch the sampling spoon and I'm going to pull out my wallet. I'm all in. Committing in. If I hang around ice cream devouring people with my tasting spoon, am I one of them? I think that's kind of where the writer's talking about. I mean, they didn't have ice cream back then, so he couldn't have used that analogy, could he? But that's my analogy. If I hang around ice cream devouring people with my tasting spoon, am I one of them? The second part that I want to have a look into this passage is this in Hebrews 6, 7 and 8. And I, I've lost all of my creative juices at this point this week, so I simply called it a picture. Sorry about that. I was hoping for something a bit more creative. Um, verses 7 and 8. Let's read this one again. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. This passage indicates that there's two types of ground. One that when rained upon produces a crop and other when rained upon only produces weeds. For any of you who've got a background in farming, uh, you would have a, a, a good picture of all of this. The rain or the gospel falls on both, both the, the poor ground and the good ground. Now, does, does that remind you of another story in the New Testament? You don't have to worry anymore. Here it is in Matthew 13, 3 to 9. Let's, let's read this one through. It's just such a great parable, and I think it really links up quite nicely with our Hebrews 6 passage. Jesus told them many things in parables and he's saying a farmer went out to sow his seed and as he was scattering the seed some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. 
Now, one of the great things uh, in the Gospels is that Jesus tells these parables to the crowds of people. And we, we hear in that, it was to the crowds of people. Later on, it was just the disciples with Jesus. And he explained the meaning of this to his disciples. So we pick up part of his explanation in verse 20 and 21 of Matthew 13. And Jesus says, now this is just to his disciples. He says this, The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And that happens around us every day. People who are hearing the word. People who are tasting with their tasting spoon. This, this, is, this is good. I'm, but something is wrong in their life. The, the soil is not good soil. And there's a, there's a rejection, ultimately a rejection of that because it doesn't produce an environment in which this seed of the gospel can grow. That seems to be what this parable that Jesus is, is telling them seems to be talking about. A hardness within people's lives. The difference is not the rain. The rain falls on the good soil and the bad soil. The difference is how the soil is prepared. And some soil is so hard, the water doesn't penetrate. For those of you who have a farming background and you know that you can have what's called hard soil, what do you do with hard soil? You till it. It's a funny word, isn't it? Till it. Or plough it up. Or another better way to say it is you break it up. You break up all the hard bits so that it creates an environment for the water to penetrate. And I think this is a great illustration because I think from time to time people are broken up. We, our lives are broken up. Circumstances happen in our life which we can no longer hide through our external exterior. You know, we put up these walls and so, and things happen. And I think what's happened in Lismore in the last four months or so has broken up a lot of people. Now, I'm not saying that that's, we should be cheering about that, but it's just the fact that some people have got to a stage where their lives are being tilled. And we've got a, a choice at that point in the brokenness. I can receive the word of God, the, the moisture. And at that point, hopefully it'd be penetrated. And you've probably seen that. You've seen broken people who are willing to receive the water, the word of God into their lives. How good is that? How good is that? A tilled life, broken, but ready to receive the water of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Funny though, you see other people who, when they get broken up, the first and probably most natural reaction is what? Let's get that hard exterior built again. Let's harden these things up. And we need to be praying. We need to be praying for our friends and the people we have in contact with. And we'll be in contact with a lot of broken people. That in their brokenness, they would be open to receive the water of the gospel of Jesus. What a, what a great image is that? The image of the good and the hard soil. 
we need to pray that people will remove that, that God will help them remove that hard crust. And the third part, so I looked at the first part, verses 4 to 6, just a taste, 7 to 8, a picture, and 9 to 12, I've titled it Devouring the Gospel. And this is just the contrast to the sampling. Let's read again in verses 9 through to 12. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Previously in this, in this Hebrews passage, the writer had in mind those who are believers and those who are lost. But now he issues a challenge about maturing, allowing the Holy Spirit to work, to produce a dynamic faith and not to shake our faith, but to grow us. That this, this breaking and this challenging for the Jewish Christians at that time, for the challenges were actually there that can design them to help to, to press in and trust all the more. He reminds us that better things are coming, not just tasting or being enlightened, but experiencing the completeness of Christ's kingdom. God says here, will not forget us. He will not overlook us. Let's look at verse 10 again. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. A life yielded, or probably a better way is surrendered to God's spirit, will produce a fertile soil. I'm sure every single one of you here would be willing to say, I, I want my life to be a, a fertile soil. And a fertile soil is where good fruit or good work can thrive. You would like that? means we've got to be prepared, prepared for God to do the work in us, to till us, to, to, to break us up from time to time and to challenge us so that we can grow to receive the water of God's word. And continue on for that last passage in verse 12. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. In the NIV, it says the hope for which is fully realised. What it basically means is having full assurance. Having the full assurance that I belong to God through Christ. And, and I don't think that there can be a better level of comfort. Now, no matter what we go through, whether we go through floods or pandemics or wars or financial strife or whatever, there can be no later greater level of confidence to know that I am safe and secure in God's presence. And if we can fully trust that and know that he has the capacity that whatever we go through, he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, and he will guide us and love us, that we can continue to grow in him. And it's got a little bit to do with making sure where we keep our eyes directed. Remember what the whole theme of this, this sermon series is about? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That where it's become our focus. 
Too often our focus is on the troubles and the difficulties and how we can sort out this problem and how we can get out of financial difficulty and how we can you know, buy this or sort out this or resolve this conflict problem over here or whatever. This confidence allows us to yield or submit more than merely taste and allow the fertile ground for God to work. This is the soil that leads us to maturity. I just want us to pause for a moment and if it helps us to to close our eyes, I just want us to, to think of a perfect family environment. And you've got a dad who just loves you unconditionally. Now, for some of us, we, we've grown up in a variety of family situations and some of us find it hard to imagine that. Some of us have had good family upbringings, but just imagine you're in an environment where your father loves you unconditionally. We belong to him. And we know that as truth because the word says that that Christ died that we can be in his kingdom in his his family and so I want to say heavenly father we just thank you for that incredible blessing that we belong to you we're we're in this this family where there is unconditional love and acceptance Heavenly Father, help us not to take that for granted. Help us to celebrate that every day. Celebrate the fact that we have this this incredible love from this incredible God who says, you are mine. You belong to me. But Heavenly Father, we also recognise in this passage challenges us a bit like the, the oldest son in the story of the prodigal son. We've just become apathetic. We've been bothered by everything else going on around us. We've taken our eyes off you. And so therefore, when we've taken our eyes off you, we've become anxious about all of the, the troubles round about us. Or a bit like the older son in the prodigal son, we compare ourselves to the other son and we look at other people and they go, how come they're getting this and how come they're getting that and how come they seem to be better off than I am and how come they're getting all the attention? And we lose sight of the wonderful position that we are in by grace, not by effort, by grace in the family of God. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, for just being indifferent or or apathetic. By your Spirit, stir within us, wherever we've created hard crusts in our life, where we, we just become indifferent or apathetic, help us to surrender, 
to be willing for you to, to break up that hard exterior so that we may receive the water of your word into our lives and that we may thrive and grow and produce good fruit. We surrender those parts of our life. And I just want to pray for anybody here this morning. If I was to ask the direct question, do you belong to Jesus Christ? And you can't confidently respond and say, yes, I have, but look, I've been here a bit and I've done a bit of this and I've tasted this and I've tasted that and I've hung around Christians and I can talk all the Christian lingo, but I don't know. My prayer for you this morning is you would stop playing that game. Because it's not a game. And that requires a surrender. It requires acknowledgement that I can't keep going like this. I need to give it all. I'm not just going to taste. I'm going to sacrifice and devour. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, by your Spirit for those who are here this morning, that you will impress upon them the need to respond. In all of this, Heavenly Father, as we continue from here and as we go from here, that, that you will lead us either into a saving grace or onto a maturity of faith. That you will help us to reflect the position that we are in. Children of the living God in his family. That we would live that out every day. With that being our primary focus. Take us, lead us, use us, Heavenly Father. Stir us that we may continue to grow in faith and maturity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.